Guys, good morning. Um, we are in week three of our shift series. We're going through a few different paradigm shifts around this whole idea of learning to fly right side up. Because when we live life in our own kingdom, we, whether we know it or not, are actually flying upside down. Jesus invites us to be his disciples and learn how to fly right side up. So week one, anyone remember what we talked about? That's okay. The suspense is killing me. Or someone knows? Josh? Yeah, there's, there's this shift that needs to take place of a life oriented around self to a life oriented around God. Week two, Josh did a great job. He talked us through how we need to shift from a life of observation to a life of participation in God's kingdom. And so today, week three, we're looking at the shift from a life of isolation to a life of intimacy with God and with others. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do that, I'd like us just to pray yet again. And uh, yeah, let's just join our hearts together, guys, as we ask God for help. So, God, we thank you for your word that we just heard. We thank you, Jesus, that you invite us to follow you. And I ask, Lord, this morning that what I've prepared, that you would breathe on it, Lord, that it would make sense, that it would be clear, and that anything that is just from me, my own agenda or idea, may it just fall away. But anything that is from you, Lord, may it cut through our hearts and minds. May it draw us out of hiding and into the light. And may we leave here, Lord, with a greater understanding of what you've accomplished for us, the way that you've made for us to come before you as we really are through your life, death, and resurrection, Jesus. And so we want to be disciples who live life in intimacy with you and with others. So help us today understand this and may it go deep down into us by your spirit this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can you guys hear me with, without the microphone? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So who, who, who here gets triggered by the word isolation after the last 18 months? We, we, in some shape or form, have all experienced some type of isolation over the last year and a bit. And if that is a trigger word for you, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm not going to bore you with the stats, but I'm sure, if you, I'm sure you guys have heard and read the staggering statistics about what life in, in isolation has done in terms of our mental health and depression and anxiety. I'm just, I'm just going to read one stat just to kind of, that I think is illustrative of, of the point I'm trying to make here. So this is a, a, a survey to see the average share of adults reporting symptoms of anxiety disorder or, or, or depressive disorder. So this survey was done in January to June of 2019, and 11% of adults said that was the case for them. And that was in 2019. In January of 2021, 41.1% of adults said this. So it's undoubtable and it's undebatable that the fact is that when we live in isolation, there's something that isn't in alignment with how we're created to be. There's something in us that, that you know, a lot of us have experienced that in the last year and a bit, where we're, we're longing for connection where we, we miss seeing one another, we miss gathering together, we miss just being known and seeing one another. So some of us, we don't need to go over the stats to know what isolation has done to us, to our relationship with God and with others. It's actually one of the ingredients, I think, that the enemy uses to keep us and trap us in sin most poignantly. And so I don't want you to think that this is something that just may be kind of like a hot topic, like, okay, how can I capitalize on the COVID pandemic? And choosing this word. But this whole idea of isolation, it goes all the way back to the beginning of the story of God. Remember, when Adam and Eve in the garden, they actually chose to define good and evil themselves. 
they made this decision in isolation from God, correct? And so they went from living a life with God to, to being banished from the garden. And so sin did this. And remember, the whole story of Scripture is, is about overcoming the isolation and distance created by our human rebellion, right? The story of Scripture is heaven, the story of heaven on earth being ripped apart into heaven and earth and God's glorious mission to reunite these two realms. The truth is that God has been, is, and will continue to invite us to surrender to his loving embrace and thus end our isolation and welcome us into a life of intimacy with himself and with others. Which sounds amazing. We're all like, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. So why don't we, though? Why don't we say yes to that? Why, why do we choose to stay in isolation rather than surrender to God's intimate embrace? Here are a few ideas. And I think this is a cyclical thing, as I was thinking about it, that, that there's this cycle of isolation that we can fall into. The first thing is this, and this is just, let's go for it. We are sinful and broken people. So in our brokenness, And in living out our flesh and living out the kingdom of self, this is the truth, guys. We believe that life is actually better without God. So in that space, that that delusion, there is an upheld desire and value and energy and effort spent in defending ourselves and trying to keep our own kingdom separate from God. Anyone else feel that? And and, and the reality is, guys, this is an illusion that I can live life without God. In him I live and move and have my being. That's what the scriptures say. But in that frame of mind, in that space of living a life and, and just our flesh being, being a real thing we battle, there's this refusal to surrender to the loving invitation to, to join God's kingdom. So we have to come to grips with that. One of the reasons we stay in isolation is that we're refusing to actually respond because of our sinfulness and brokenness. And we think we could do it better than God could. We see this in how we think about politicians, or we see this like, I could lead this country better than the prime minister. We think we know better. Our definition of good and and evil is better than those around us. It could be criticizing the the quarterback of your favorite football team. You think you could throw it better than they could. That's just a small illustration. But that's the point. We think we know better than God, and we think that we can live life without God. When we do this, though, inevitably the next step of this process is we fall into this space of shame. We, we know there's something wrong and we're afraid that someone is going to find out, that, that, that our rebellion will be found out and, and exposed. And what we see in the story, going back to the story of Adam and Eve, what do Adam and Eve do after they sin against God? They hide. They hide in the garden. So our shame keeps us in this place of hiding. And what happens is isolation keeps us in hiding and in the dark. And this is where the enemy thrives. He loves to keep us in the darkness. He loves to keep us hiding and saying and whispering lies like, if they knew this about you, they wouldn't love you. If God knew this about you, how could he love someone so sinful and broken as you? So isolation keeps us in hiding. It keeps us in shame and it keeps us in the dark. So then it keeps going in that space that we we convince ourselves that the only way I'm going to come out of the darkness, the only way I'm going to come out of hiding is if I project this false self. And we see this with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they come out of hiding, but they're covered up all of a sudden, right? They're, they're covered up by leaves. They come out covering up who they really are. So what we do is we step out of darkness, quote unquote, but we only step out and expose a version of ourselves that isn't actually true. And so what we do is we craft and cultivate and curate this perfect image of someone good enough, lovable, likable, holy enough, etc., etc., etc. And we exhaust ourselves 
We, this takes a tremendous amount of energy and effort. And, in all, and, and the truth is, it takes a lot of us just lying. Lying to ourselves and lying to others. And as we do that continually and over and over and over again, what happens is we lose a grasp on reality. We are no longer living in reality. And in that place of, of living in unreality, we're, we're unable to see that we live in God's world, not that God lives in my world. So what I mean by that is we're not inviting God to, to live in a false reality. He's inviting us to come out of hiding and come live in the real world. A world that he created, a world that he knows about, a, a world where he knows life is messy. There's poop and there's zits and there's lust and there's pride. The world we live in is, is a real messy place. Don't act like your poop don't stink. <laughs> but this is the truth, guys. Nonetheless, in that space, God is present. God is here. And the lie of isolation is that God is only in certain places when we're good enough, when we're, most, when we're presentable enough, and on and on the lies could go. But what we see is in the life of isolation, we live lives that are actually fruitless. Because what John was reading to us from John 15, um, apart from him, we can do nothing, correct? So we're cut off from the very source of life that we need in our delusion that life is actually better without God. You guys okay? Okay. So I want to be, I want to take a second here and, and not underemphasize the reality of what we've just been talking about. That each of us in some capacity or depth or space are living lives of isolation to God. That there are things that we think we can keep hidden from God, that we think we know better than God and think that, okay, if I can just keep doing this or if I could just project or present this false self, then maybe God would, would overlook this thing. And, and I would just say to you, that is the enemy lying to you and wanting to keep you in hiding and darkness. And there is an immediacy to this, guys, where God is actually in his and Jesus is called to come follow him. It's like, a, hey, I'm here, and, but you need to respond. You need to come and follow me. You need to come out from hiding God in the garden saying, hey, where are you? He's actually inviting them. You have to take a step forward. And so we, we can acknowledge our isolation. But the challenge is for us to step out of our isolation into intimacy. Right. God's not going to drag us out of there. And so sometimes I think we wait for him to kind of pull us out and we just kind of sit there and fight it as long as possible rather than saying, hey, listen, I recognize my own sinfulness, God. I recognize the energy and effort I'm putting into presenting and projecting this false self and I'm done with it. And you can be done with it right here, right now. That's the good news. But here's the good news of the gospel, okay? This is where it gets good. The son of God, Jesus himself, crossed all the distance our rebellion and alienation has, has caused and he put on skin. And he came and he walked amongst us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So God himself in the flesh, he came and he put on a body, a body that had to use the bathroom, that had to be bathed, that sweat, that ached, that stubbed its toe, that hit his thumb with the hammer like me yesterday. <laughs> he inhabits a body like you and I. So whatever perceived idea of isolation or distance, he crosses over that in Jesus. And as he walked amongst us, he showed us the very heart of God, a, a, a desire that stood before the foundation of time to have close face to face relationship with you and you and you and you and you and you, Remy and you, Jude, of course, man, and your neighbor and your grandma and your kids, 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 kid. 
God wants relationship with us. The lie of the enemy is that he does not and that we can live without that. What Jesus does is he come and he announces the arrival of the rule of God. And in so doing, he showed us what, that, what God is actually like and what life under his rule and reign can be. We see the blind receiving sight. We see healing every disease and affliction. We see the dead coming back to life, righteousness, justice, and peace, and so much more. John talks about if, if we were to record everything that Jesus ever did, it would fill up the entire world. There's more than we could ever imagine that God does. And in the most glorious moment of history, this is where I want to I really zero in, guys. Jesus steps all the way into the deep, dark, desolate isolation and distance and sin that the human race possessed. And in his death on the cross, he goes down, 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 all the way to the bottom. All the way to the bottom of our sin of the worst things we've ever done, the worst things we've ever thought, the worst things we've ever dreamed or hoped for or experienced. And what he does is he gets underneath all of it. He goes all the way down, all the, to the depths of our isolation, to the depths of our hiding, to the depths of our false selves, and he gets underneath it. And in that space, as he goes into the grave, he pays the price and experiences in that space the full pitch of the isolation that we deserve so that he could come and bring you and I home. Not only that, the scriptures teach us that Jesus became our sin. And in that place of alienation and isolation, what does Jesus do? He joins himself to you and I. He comes and finds us. Like a diver come to rescue a man on the bottom of the ocean floor, he scoops you and I up and he rises from the grave victorious over sin and death. And here's the good news. He brings you and me with him. Amen. That's good news. So as you come up out of the depths of of your isolation, Jesus asks you, what do you think about getting to know me better? And what about these others that I have also rescued and brought back to life? This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus brings us into new relationship with the Father and with others. He finds us in our isolation and invites us into intimacy. So what does that look like? That's where we're going to end today. Two things that we're going to talk about in intimacy. So we're moving from isolation into intimacy. Our definition we're going to use for intimacy is this, knowing and being known by the Father and his family. John 15, Jesus is talking about us learning to abide in him. Um, To be with Jesus here is the goal. And what he's saying is, hey, let me make my home in you, and you come and you make your home in me. That's pretty intimate language, okay? Those of us who live with other people, we we know what that looks like. That, That means you see it all, you hear it all, and you experience it all, right? There's no hiding in living together. And this is something I wanted to kind of just distinguish or just kind of put my finger on for a second um there's a difference between knowing about jesus and knowing jesus and so knowing about someone is very it's interesting now with the internet and all this kind of stuff that we can know about basically anyone if you want to get really creepy you could find out everything about me if you wanted to um but in that space of kind of knowing people from a distance it requires very little from you it's often one-sided right it's not relational and and although i could find out what's going on with you know, whoever, Kanye West, I doubt he's doing the same thing. He's not Googling what's Tom Wolf doing today, I guarantee you. 
So knowing about someone, although you can know all the facts of their life and what they think and what they're doing, it's one-sided and it's, it's often not relational. However, what we're talking about here is knowing, and the word here Jesus uses, the Greek word is genosko. And that means um, to really, really know someone. And I think in this space, I want us to think about this. In order to really know someone, this requires reciprocity. And what I mean by that, if I'm really going to know you, you need to be equally known by me. Correct? So in order to really know someone, you must be equally known by them. This is a deeply relational thing that we're talking about here. We're not talking about, hey, guys, let's memorize the Bible and let's just know all these facts about the incarnation. It's actually, no, we want to be known by Jesus and know Jesus and one another. So how do we do this? How do we respond to Jesus's follow me? Because Jesus is in heaven right now sitting next to the father. So how do we learn to be with Jesus? Two things. The first thing is we're going to talk about what it looks like to live life in the spirit. Being with Jesus is the goal here, but how is that possible if he's in heaven with the Father? He is with us by his spirit. And before, uh, the, just before um, the, the scriptures that John read in John chapter 14, Jesus says this to his disciples. He's about to, go, um, about to be arrested and eventually go into the cross and all that stuff. So he says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is with us by his Spirit. And so Paul in Romans 8 talks about the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the, from the dead dwells in you and me. So those of us who have been baptized, received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus. So he indwells us. He's moved into our life. Do we realize that? So Jesus is with us by his spirit. And so the one, of the, the, one of the main ways we, we live life with God is we learn to live a life in the spirit. So the more um, we begin to function as, as those who are alive in God's world, the more we realize that there is no hiding from God. Right? We were talking about that before, how isolation, we often think that God lives in our world, not that we live in God's world. So as we, as we come into the life of the Spirit, what we're going to realize is that God is present in all things. He sees it all, the highs, the lows, the boring in between. God is there. So I'm going to give you guys two scenarios. I'm going to ask you a question after that. So scenario one, imagine this. Um, I got in a fight with my wife the night before. I wake up early, grumpy, come downstairs, stub my toe, swear, kick the dog, um, burn my tongue on my coffee swear again don't read my bible and then just kind of huff and puff and go about my day scenario one scenario two i have just completed a 40-day fast um i've been silent i have read the bible in hebrew and greek even though i don't know hebrew and greek somehow i could do it In, in those two scenarios where is god most or more present Boom. He's there equally in both of those situations. The difference I would suggest is my awareness. So life in the spirit, what it does is it makes me aware of God's presence in and through the everyday stuff of my life. As I'm as I do come downstairs and kick my dog and stub my toe and swear and burn my tongue on my coffee. I realize, okay, God is here with me. Thank you, God, that you're here that you want to hang out with me, even though I have bad breath. And I don't have a shirt on yet. You're still here. You want to hang out with me. So that is the reality for us is that 
that when we're with God, it's, it's, with, it's in all of life. When we live life in the Spirit, it's not just here on Sunday mornings or when Dan's singing or when we're taking communion. It's all the time. Paul talks about this, about learning to pray continuously and, and without ceasing. That seems ridiculous. But what that means is we learn to keep God's presence ever before us, reminded and aware that he is with us and cares and is invested and involved and wants to be around. Brother Lawrence, uh, a Parisian monk, talked about practicing the presence of God. Same thing. There's just this, we're tuning in, we're learning to become aware of God's nearness to us in the everyday stuff of life. It's not that he isn't there during amazing times of worship or 40-day fasts or reading the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. It's that he's in everything else as well. And often we believe the lie that he's only in those times rather than everything else as well. So here's the thought. What would it look like if, we, if you began to invite the Holy Spirit into all that you're doing? As you walk your kids to school, as you take out the garbage, as you work through a problem at work, as you fight with your spouse, as you enjoy a good glass of wine, what would it look like if you began to invite the Holy Spirit to make himself known to you in those spaces? I believe that would result in amazing kingdom fruitfulness, actually. A life displaying the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I think we could all agree this is true. The more time you spend with someone, the more you eventually act and become like them. So God knows this and sends us his Spirit to accomplish the work of sanctification or us becoming like Jesus. So being with Jesus, first of all, is learning to live life in the spirit. The second thing is, is, is us learning to live lives devoted to life in community. Intimacy requires relationship with other people, right? You can't be intimate with yourself. All that Jesus speaks of in John 15 ends with him saying, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So all, all these things about abide, abiding and, and staying connected and him making his home in me and me making my home in him is about eventually the fruitfulness of us learning to love one another. You see, Jesus lives in you and he lives in me. And I think one of the ways that we are with Jesus most poignantly and the most um, evidently is, is when we're with one another. You see, that, that if, if, if this is true, what Jesus says, which it is true, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And that's part of the pain that we experienced last year not being able to gather is there's that sense of like I'm missing something of God's presence as we gather together. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. As we gather, we carry the presence of God with us. And and in doing so, we're with Jesus as we're with one another. Think about the disciples and their responding to Jesus' call to follow him. They would have, in that, they would have realized that what Jesus is, is, is saying is, hey, come live life with me. Uh, everyday stuff, we're going to go around together, we're going to do everything together. And this means not just with Jesus, it means with one another there. So they had a shared experience of seeing Jesus feed the 5,000, healing the sick, flipping over the tables in the temple, being confused by his parables, falling asleep while he's praying, all that stuff they experienced together. And I think that strengthened their bond of friendship and intimacy with one another. You see, being with Jesus implied being with one another. I want, I want you to think about that. Being with Jesus implies that we are with one another. See, there is a depth of availability and openness that we are called to as Jesus' disciples. And what that means is we have to make space and time available in our lives for relationship with others to live a life of intimacy. 
We have to learn how to do that, to prioritize and set aside space and time for relationship with other people in this room. We as a church are called to be a family to those without a family as well. There are people who have, have do, do experience this, that sense of isolation, not by any choice of their own, that need to be brought into intimate relationship, to experience unconditional love, to be extended grace, to be brought into the boring everyday stuff of life. And God is asking us to be that for those around us. And so we're excited this week, guys, that our community groups are starting. Woo woo. Um, but the, I want to just be straight up and honest that we, as a leadership, we believe that our community groups are just the tip of the iceberg for what relationship could be. You see, that those groups are great and they're smaller than they were even before. But we believe that they're and, and pray that from those groups are going to be discipleship groups and friendships that naturally form where you can go even deeper into intimacy with one another. Or you really know and are known in deep and real ways. That's our hope and prayer. So we're super excited to see those things going. But we, we have hopes and dreams that that's just the beginning of something even more deep and rich for you. So all that sounds great, Tom. But how does that happen? You see, there is, we wanted to be up front this whole series, guys, that this stuff does, it, is, it does cost us. And so for us to be living lives of intimacy with God and with others, it's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us trust. It's going to cost us honesty, um, us, our egos dying a slow and painful death, um, forgiveness needing to be extended and have extended to you, grace being extended and being extended to you, mercy, same thing, a willingness to realize that we're going to let each other down, that we're going to hurt one another, but all the still saying, yes, I'm here for it. I want to be in a relationship. And there's probably a lot of unforeseen costs that we couldn't even um, measure up yet. It's like doing a reno. You don't really know what to plan for. There's always those extra things. But I'm convinced of this, guys, that Jesus' call for us as disciples is out of isolation and into intimacy, where Jesus already knows everything about you. Jesus knows your deepest, darkest secrets. He knows your deepest, most real dreams and hopes. And he is there for it. He wants to heal you from the inside out. He wants to draw you out of isolation and into intimacy. Amen.